0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lencov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues: sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it.
1: How's it going, everyone? Welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott Will and Emery. Tina, always great to see you.
2: Good to see you too, Joe.
1: Along with Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff, Rich, great to see you as well. Sorry about the hey Celtics, Joe.
3: Yeah, Celtics uh, looking at uh, elimination game tomorrow night. So uh, I've been to one game in Boston for every round. Very disappointing game four, but we'll uh, we'll get back to it on game six. Hopefully,
1: yeah, well, I'm sure they're going to be thinking about you for game six. I'm sure. Uh, Let's move into our first topic today of the January 6th hearings, a topic we'll actually talk about in the legal grab bag as well, but we're pleased to welcome in our first guest of the day, Ankush Kudori, contributing writer for New York Magazine's Interceptor and contributing editor at Political Magazine. Ankush, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. Ankush, let's just jump right into it because uh, our listeners are pretty much up to speed, I think, on some of the details. What, What interests me is the you know, different couple of different messages coming out of the January 6th committee as to whether they'll refer this to the DOJ for prosecution. Right? We heard from Benny Thompson saying that you know he understands the DOJ will hear this testimony. You know, AG Garland has confirmed this week that they're all watching. On the other hand, uh, Liz Cheney, the uh, the co chair, has said they have not decided whether or not they will be making an actual referral to the DOJ. So, what's the difference there? I think it's probably you know we're just parsing minor differences. At the end of the day, the DOJ, if there's enough, I think, uh, to pursue criminal charges, that's the decision they'll make, whether or not this committee makes a, a formal referral. But maybe let's get your perspective on the difference there.
0: No, I agree with you. Actually, I wrote a piece for um, for Politico like a, a month or two ago when this particular topic was sort of making the rounds initially uh, over a few days and people were sort of batting it around. I share your view. I, I, I don't Think that it's a I think it's kind of a red herring, and honestly, I think it's kind of something that just is fodder for people to talk about. Um I don't think there's any real way to predict the political consequence of providing a a referral with this particular justice department. I think a lot of people have been sort of trying to figure out, oh, is it gonna would it help move Garland into a particularly aggressive position or would it dissuade him because it looked political? I don't know. I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, like, I'm interested in the facts that the, that the committee is revealing. And I think that's what the Justice Department is going to be interested in.
3: I mean, just picking up on that, I mean, so it is probably a political issue. I mean, what would be the motivation for Benny Thompson, who is clearly like, you know, not a fan of Trump? Obviously, you know, he's among the most prominent members of the committee being the chair. Like, what would be the motivation to him to say that they're not making a formal uh, referral? Makes no sense.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly, I can't uh, make sense of it myself, except maybe he's trying to preemptively tamp down expectations. That right. doesn't really work when the next thing that happens is your committee members publicly disagree with you. Um, right. That's been a bit of a recurring thing with this group. It's been a very, very well conducted investigation. But on major questions, like sometimes they're just arguing with each other in the press.
3: Right.
2: So, Ankush, if, if they would pursue criminal charges, Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about things like seditious conspiracy. What would need to be proven and what do you think Trump's defenses would likely be?
0: I mean, I think the theories that people have uh, seized on, particularly given the committee's approach, right, uh, are that sort of in the run up to January 6th, there is this sort of period, the month in between you know, the election and January 6th, during which Trump did two things that are potentially criminal. One is advancing a series of false factual claims of election fraud, despite knowing the truth, which is that there was no meaningful election fraud. He had no chance of winning. That could be a viable theory under either Section 371 or 1512 under the criminal code. And for the moment, I'm not going to like try to get into the pros and cons of these theories, just sketching them out. Um, and uh, the second criminal statute that might apply is Section 1512, Uh, of the criminal code, which is uh, corruptly obstructing uh, uh, um, a government proceeding, in this case, the January 6th certification. Um, So that's one theory, two statutes, one theory. Same two statutes, but a conceptually independent theory, to my mind, is he and his allies were advancing baseless, borderline frivolous legal theories in order to persuade Pence that he should reject some or a critical mass of the electoral votes on January 6th. Both of those theories were articulated by the committee in a filing related to you know, their efforts to get John Eastman's emails and ultimately endorsed under obviously a much more relaxed legal standard in this posture, but eventually endorsed by the presiding judge handling that dispute out in California. So I think you know everybody has to kind of put those two theories at the top of the heap because They've been litigated in some in some manner and they have sort of the committees of premature there are other more discrete I, I think theories um, one that I you know has kind of bugged me is like did Trump just commit straightforward election fraud when he was speaking to Brad Raffensperger and offering this series of um, false claims of election fraud it's kind of like a more discreet instance of the you know the broader election denialism theory but it's more narrowly tailored it's on it's on uh there's a recording um and it would sort of be easier i think to sort of build out the relevant facts uh, other people have said well maybe these alternate slates of electors might might generate uh, a, a, a viable lead that one i think is a little more removed from trump personally right we, we really don't know much about how if at all he was involved in that but I understand why it's drawn people's attention. So, you know, those first two theories, I think, are, have been the focus of the committee's attention, and, and it was, uh, attention is kind of provides, I think, their conceptual framework behind it, how they're trying to lay out the evidence.
3: Ankish, one of the more um, titillating, for lack of a better term, uh, piece of evidence we heard was about the alleged intoxication of Rudy Giuliani. We heard yeah. from at least one campaign aide, Jason Miller, who was, uh, you know, one of his top aides, that he thought... Uh, Trump's personal lawyer, the former mayor of New York, was definitely intoxicated. Uh, I wonder if Trump has a um, ineffective assistance of counsel defense uh, down the road. What are your What are your thoughts on on this allegation? So it's easy to make
0: light of. It does, you know. We should have fun where we can. Um, I will say, Rudy Giuliani's possible drinking problems have sort of been on evidence publicly for a couple of years now. So I don't really want to entirely make light of it. In this particular context, you know. I think it is worth actually trying to think about, like, really, like, the legal significance of it in the way your question suggests one possibility, right? Not so much an effective assistance of counsel thing, but I was just thinking today, you know, one theory that, the uh, the you know, that, that we have here or banding about here is, like, Trump's claims of election fraud uh, were knowingly false because he was being told, you know, repeatedly over and over again, that they were not true. There's other circumstantial evidence, including that he kept making them, that the claims were so outrageous, right? All of these are circumstantial pieces of evidence that you might use if you were trying to pursue this theory in a real case. I think it's interesting that, like, the first person who introduces this idea post-election, now Trump had been doing it pre-election, too, banning these claims, also circumstantial evidence, right? But the first person who introduces it evidently post-election is a evidently visibly intoxicated Rudy Giuliani, right? This is like also like much more discreet, but it is circumstantial evidence that this was kind of obvious BS. And I also think it's worth recalling that Trump doesn't drink, right? Mm -hmm. Trump doesn't drink because his brother had, as I recall, his brother had problems with alcohol. So, you know, if you were really trying to play this out as like a prosecutor in the most robust way, you probably would try to bring that in. Like, this is someone who is attuned to visible intoxication and, and the problem of visible intoxication. And so, for him to just like kind of take this idea and like seize upon it, it's, you know, not earth shattering, it's not dispositive, but it's potential evidence.
3: I mean, Trump will jump on anyone. I mean, even people who aren't intoxicated, he will allege that they're incompetent, stupid, whatever. I think it's obvious that he will jump on this piece of evidence as another reason why he's not responsible, right? I mean, it's very easy to f- foresee him saying it's all drunk Rudy's fault. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I think if you're going to play this out, we
0: have to be like responsible about it, right? So that would be a major defense, right, or or a key defense. How How effective it would be, you know, let's bracket that. But absolutely, he's going to say... His lawyers were telling him that the legal challenges were viable, however crazy and, and slap shot, you know, slip shot they turned turn out to be. And that uh, just for instance, like take Barr, right? The notion that Barr, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, is a truth teller on these election fraud claims. He's got a lot of baggage himself because, of course, what Trump is going to say, if in this hypothetical trial in which Barr takes the stand, which may never actually occur, he's going to say, well, you know who else thought the election was uh, uh, potentially going to be rife with fraud? Bill Barr who was saying this on cnn who was saying this publicly over and over again and so like you know i'm no stupider than he is and now all of a sudden he's decided in the last weeks of the election that he's had enough he writes me this fawning letter which doesn't suggest that he had this extraordinary break where he was cursing at me allegedly, supposedly, right he had this you know spartacus moment <laughs> um and so, like, uh, you know, every criminal case has baggage, right? Every complicated criminal case has witnesses with baggage, potential lines of cross that can't sort of deter you. But I definitely agree. This would be you know, a key line of defense that if prosecutors were to take this sort of effort seriously as, a, as an investigation, you have to really run it to ground and make sure you have all of your ducks in a row and, and counter arguments to all of this.
1: Again, that's Kush Kadori of New York Magazine and Politico Magazine. Kush, thank you so much for the insight today.
4: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: Welcome back to the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. And recently, law firms have been branching out beyond lawyers in bid to beat out rival advisors. With that, we bring in Joe Andrew, global chairman of Dentons and & Andrew, the largest law firm in the world and accomplished and highly regarded corporate lawyer. Joe also served as the chairman of the U.S. Democratic National Committee from 1999 to 2001. We're really happy to have him on, Joe. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Well, I'm glad to be here.
2: So, Joe, as Joe Brand mentioned, traditionally law firms have been laser focused on competing against other law firms in their quest for market share. Given how the competitive landscape has shifted over the past few years, Who are law firms now competing against?
5: That's a great question. You know, the reality is our clients have either problems or they have opportunities and they don't categorize them as being a legal problem or a legal opportunity. They're about growing the company, protecting the company, operating or financing. And so what we're really focused on is trying to help those clients whatever they may need. And so what we see as our competitors is different in every market and all across the globe, but it's ultimately competing against those people that are also providing those high-end strategic consulting services, legal services that really are about making a company go.
3: So Joe, I know that these other prongs that you're uh, branching out into include uh, an advisory firm and also a regulatory compliance software maker. Tell us more about those and uh, what challenges branching off into tr- from traditional legal services presents in, you know, these new worlds that you're exploring.
5: Well, we've always seen Dentons as more than a traditional law firm. So having Dentons Global Advisors, which is our strategic consulting group, uh, which we founded a year ago, just this week, uh, with the partnership with the Albright Stonebridge Group and then with Interrel, which is a premier European consulting group, uh, really placed us in a different position where our brand was perceived as a business brand and not just a legal brand. And what that means is even clients that come to us just for legal services see us as speaking the client language more, better able to understand the issues that they have. So it helps us literally be able to position ourselves in the marketplace uh, as a solution provider.
2: So, Joe, beyond the eight traditional service offerings that we've been talking about, there's any number of ways that law firms choose to evolve in order to compete in the market, including through lateral growth and mergers, which is something that you and Dentons know well. Now as the world's largest law firm, what has your narrative and strategy been over the past few years, at least as relates to your growth?
5: Well, as you know, we are different than the firms simply because of our breadth and depth. We're not just the largest firm. We're three times larger than the second largest law firm. We have more than twice as many offices in a third more as many countries as even the second one. So even if number two and number three were to combine themselves, they still wouldn't be anywhere near our size. And while I've never met a client that needs 12,000 lawyers, they usually just need one. The reality is the math is pretty simple. It's more likely to find that exact right one if you're choosing among 12,000 than 1,200 or 120. So you see a strategy there that has led us to do more law firm combinations as well as recruit more laterals. and the law firm in the history of the profession. Now you can't buy a law firm. You're not you know, offering uh, to buy an individual person. So what that means is people are doing due diligence on the firm and deciding they want to tie their future together with ours. They like what they hear. They like what they see is happening at Dentons, and we're obviously very flattered and very proud of that activity.
3: So last question here on Legal Face Off. In addition to talking to us about moving into different areas uh that you could provide service to your clients what other trends are you seeing we'd be remiss if we didn't ask uh, the head of the world's largest law firm or some other trends in the legal industry and particularly as we now return to a bit of normalcy after covid what are a couple trends you're seeing that we could share with our
5: listeners and viewers in the legal industry global wide well i've got the great privilege of talking to clients in more than 200 locations in more than 80 countries and the one thing you hear more than anything else is there will be no new normal. People understand that these are permanent shifts. It's more of a new dynamic where change is happening to corporations much faster than ever has before. And so the conversation in the boardroom is much bigger. It's more strategic. It goes to how do we produce, where do we produce a particular product and service? How do we go to market, where do we go to market in a way that's completely different? globalization has changed. Uh, It has become much more conscious. People are applying values to those decisions, not just economics. And that's placed law firms, all law firms, no matter whether they're big or small, in a premier position to be able to help their clients with those big strategic questions that they have now. Again, that's
1: Joe Andrew, Global Chairman of Dentons and Andrew. Joe, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. After grossing over a couple hundred million dollars, the new Top Gun movie is now dealing with a legal dispute. With that, we bring in Roderick Lindblom and Caroline Rath of Lindblom Law. Rod's an entertainment lawyer, also quoted in the Fox Digital of that Top Gun story, and Caroline Rath is an entertainment and sports lawyer. Thank you both so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. So this is a copyright lawsuit. If you can bring our listeners and our viewers up to speed, give us a little bit about the background of Who is suing who here, What who the parties are, and uh, we'll get into the uh, specifics of whether you think they have a strong or a weak case in a moment. But why don't you set it up for our listeners? Uh, Caroline, you want to take that one? Sure.
6: So um, what we have here is um, some original rights holders. Um, There was an article written in 1983 uh, that was purchased uh, and licensed by Paramount, um, and uh, that was... The basis for the original Top Gun movie. So, um, what's being alleged now by those original right holders who are, I believe the wife and the son of the original writer of that article is that, um, that they have had a reversion of rights after a certain amount of time. Um, the original rights holders can re- request or, or not request, but, um, uh terminate, terminate their uh, original agreement and the rights revert back to them so they're saying that this new top gun maverick movie is uh an infringement on their original rights which reverted back to them in january of 2020
3: so is the allegation caroline or um that they did tell paramount that they were not renewing the copyright or that They didn't do that. That's what's, I think, a little unclear. I mean, it seems a little strange that a company like Paramount, that is actually run by lawyers, by the way, uh, with their team of lawyers, would simply miss the ball on this.
6: Yes. Well, um, what has to happen in order to uh, have the rights revert is that after 35 years, the original rights holders have to um, notify the company and it has, it has to be a a, it's a legal notification. And they have to do that within a certain time frame. And the uh, allegation is that they did that, that they um, notified in 2018 that the rights would revert in January of 2020. And um, that paramount chose to ignore that. Um, there was apparently no communication between the parties, and Paramount was in, in production on the new uh, Top Gun movie. So um, they're saying that uh, by virtue of their termination notice, that the rights automatically reverted to them in January of 2020, and therefore Paramount is currently infringing on that on that uh, uh, IP.
3: Now, Rob, was very interesting, and I think what would be crucial if this lawsuit survives uh, early motions is the timing, right? Because Paramount uh, has asserted that they had substantially completed the film by the time this notice was received. And as far as I understand, I'm certainly not the expert that you are, there's really not a whole, a whole lot of case law um, to stay, you know, defining what that means. Of course, in Hollywood, we know that you know, movies can take years and that you could literally tweak a film the day it's being delivered to the theater, Right? That's not uncommon. So talk to us a little bit about how the court might interpret uh, Paramount's response with regards to the timing of the film.
7: Well, that's, you got it exactly right. No one, until they, until they unpack this thing, no one's going to know exactly what the facts are. So we don't know when exactly the, the film was completed. The plaintiffs are alleging that it was completed in 2020 or 2021. The uh, defendants are alleging that it was completed in 2020 prior to the notice for termination. So, what what really happens is it's going to come down to when is when is it completed? When is it significantly completed? And I, like you said, I don't think there's, there's a lot of case law out there that's going to help them. So it's all kind of brand new ground that they're going to be forging ahead in.
3: Now, what really interests me about these kind of cases uh, is the degree to which you can assert that the ultimate production, in this case, Top Gun, was really derivative of the original source, right? The original source, and most people aren't really reading it, but if you read it, it's really sort of a uh, basic story about two pilots who are going about their daily routine. Um, it's, it's It's pretty boring, actually, and it has really no resemblance, in my opinion, probably in Paramount's argument, to the ultimate story of either Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick. You know, those stories are successful because they add a lot of drama, romance, music, star wattage and tom cruise so how strong will the argument be that uh putting aside this 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 timing issue the initial magazine article is so different from what the public is consuming that you know that's an argument in and of itself to defeat the the lawsuit what about that
7: one of the things i i kind of disagree with you because i read the article and i thought the article was pretty exciting i thought it matched up there's a lot of similarities to it so you know that that's uh, obviously that those are issues of fact you know they're going to present those which which parts of the article and which part of the movie overlap um but i kind of think that it was it, you know it's based on the, he got the credit he got the uh can't remember the name of the suggested
6: by suggested suggested
7: by. by credit which is a weird credit i hadn't heard that one before but hmm. it's a weird credit um and then he goes on to uh is it a derivative? You're, you're, the question is Is it a derivative work of the first one? And then is the second one a derivative of that? I think the second one kind of resembles the first one just 30 years later. I don't know. Do you
6: want to? I don't think that you can really argue that the second work, which is Maverick, isn't derivative of the first work. I mean, you have the same characters, you have similar stories. Val Kilmer coming back. You have all the so the question that Paramount is kind of hinging their argument on is that the first movie wasn't really derivative of the original work, which again it they apparently thought that there was some value in um, securing the license for it because they bought the copyright pretty much right after the or they bought the license pretty much right after the article came out. So they didn't take any chances originally. And now they're arguing, oh, but it's not really derivative. And, you know, I don't think it's a baseless uh, claim because, again, if you read the article, there are certain things about the landing on the on the um, on the uh, aircraft carrier in the middle of the night. Then there are certain beats of the movie that you can find in the article. So it is funny that just uh, Paramount uh, or the, you know, the original writers and producers thought that, hey, we better lock this up. Thirty-five years ago, and they didn't take care to bother to do it this time. Which is kind of like, why would you do that? We our discussion. That's not a big
7: surprise. So that happens all the time. One hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing in these big, huge studios. In
6: but we've kind of come, we've talked about this a lot over the last week, and what we end up coming back to over and over is why didn't they just take care of this in the first place? We could this could have all been avoided instead of having to go to litigation. There are a lot of legal and factual issues that never had to be even looked at.
7: But it could have been one of those line in the sand kind of things where they had behind the scenes negotiations going on. They fell apart. The movie's going to open. So the plaintiffs file the lawsuit and here we sit. So now they've got it. Now they're going to litigate this for a while. My guess is it's not going to go all the way. I did read an article about it from a guy called J. Michael Keyes, who mentioned standing as an argument, which was very interesting that the actual article is not registered with the Copyright Office to the author. It's registered to the magazine that he published in, which is kind of a critical issue. So maybe there was a opinion letter written by Paramount. And then Paramount just said, you know what, let's roll the dice. We can we can win this thing. So
3: now, as Joe yeah, that's really an interesting argument. Now, as Joe mentioned, um, you know, we all know that Top Gun Maverick is a huge success. I mean, continues to be a huge uh uh moneymaker at the box office. What if Top Gun Maverick was a total bomb? Which, you know, hard to believe it ever would be, but my point is isn't it common that this is part? Isn't this part of the larger issue that we're seeing commonly with intellectual property these days? We've covered extensively, for example, music copyright lawsuits. Just last week, Mariah Carey was sued for someone alleging that she ripped off um, "All I Want for Christmas" from them. Uh, isn't it now and days part of the deal that when you have a successful piece of intellectual property, someone is going to sue you, and that's just part of the equation these days.
7: Well, the projection is a. a this is going to go over a billion dollars. So yeah, they're going to come out of the woodwork on this thing. But these, this is an interesting case because when you read, you know, there is that article that is there is that nineteen eighty right. article that kind of shines a light on this thing. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, they come out of the woodwork.
6: But I, I think they have more of a claim. I mean, it directly derives from their their argument is that it directly derives from the original article and therefore it is derivative. But yeah, of course. Um, from, of course, we are often plaintiffs lawyers, so I look at it from that point of view as well, though. And it's like, well, you have to you have to police your your IP. If you don't go after somebody and they're infringing, then you lose your rights. So there you come from that angle as well. Like if they just sit on there, who cares if it was a bomb? What if they what if they want to uh, have another bite at the apple? We're on our third Spider-Man series, right? What if they want to have another bite at the apple and they didn't uh, go to uh, protect their intellectual property? Then the studio's like, eh, you missed your window. So we own it. Hey, Rich, How
7: does by that the way. No, no publicity is bad publicity. You know, I mean, that's it, right. <laughs> this litigation gets filed and everybody's talking about this and the movie. It's it's all good for them.
3: Broad well, Carroll, my last question is, I think as litigators, just like fighter pilots and Top Gun Maverick, they have their nicknames. I think as litigators, we need to develop more cool nicknames like Maverick, like Iceman. If you had, a, if you had to give yourself a, a, a nickname as a litigator, I know I'm putting you on the spot. What would you come up with? What would your what would your call sign be?
7: That's the Terminator.
6: Now I, I I'm, I'm the sniper because I sit, I sit in the wings and wait to shoot. How about you? Uh, he just goes. In, he's he's the blunt axe. He just goes in. There you go.
3: Blunt, the force, the trauma. Trauma. blunt yeah. force trauma. Blunt
7: force trauma.
1: How about Hot Rod?
7: Hot Rod, <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe.
1: <laughs> so. Thank you. All right. Well, a big thanks to Hot Rod, Limblom. <laughs> right. Thanks so
7: much oh for coming. My. Here. Oh, my. oh my! Thank you guys for having us. We really <laughs> appreciate you. it.
1: It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. We have two returning guests today, and we'll start with Dan Novak, First Amendment and media law expert of Novak Media Law. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Along with Katie Leonard, a divorce and family law attorney of the Leonard Firm. You might remember her being on a couple months ago talking about her rapidly viral TikTok post about red flag professions to watch out for in marriage. Katie, thanks for joining us again as well.
8: Good to be here, guys.
1: All right, Rich, let's start off with the January 6th hearings. We got some insight from a New York magazine writer earlier today, but let's start off with the legal grab bag today.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously the biggest legal story out there... uh... Um, the hearings going on about the January 6th issues and postponed today till tomorrow, so we'll see what tomorrow brings. So far, Tina, I think it's been a pretty, uh, from a legal perspective, a pretty compelling case, right? I mean, the, uh, the evidence we've heard, particularly from those that were close to the president, I thought were some of the most compelling uh, pieces of evidence. Obviously, you know, uh, there's lots of evidence from people who are not on Trump's side, but again, to me, the most credible are people like uh, the former AG Barr, former top staffers who are testifying or who have testified that Trump was aware. Uh, There's no way he could not have been aware that these allegations of rampant fraud were uh, not legitimate and that he proceeded despite that. What I also thought was very compelling was on day one, uh, obviously the video that we saw, some of the videos, but particularly the testimony from some of the rioters that they felt that their president was calling them to action. Right. That literally they interpreted Trump's words as I'm going to the Capitol to stop the steal and I need your help. And an interesting question legally will be whether that was actually re- whether it was reasonable to interpret that as a call to action. Uh, I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that Trump was calling them to action and their actions were the direct result of that. In other words, he started the process that ultimately led to some of the horrific scenes we saw at the Capitol. So those are a couple of interesting issues from my perspective. What are your thoughts? Tina?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that now that the deaf and heard, um, you know, trial is done, we have to have some sort of must-see TV when it comes to legal stuff. And so it's going to be interesting to see what the rest of the hearings bring. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not they're going to be criminal charges, as we touched on in our interview a few minutes ago. Um, You know, they're pretty high standards when we start talking about criminal charges. So it's just going to be interesting to see how the rest of the hearings evolve and what ultimately comes of it. I mean, everybody's sort of Talks about how Trump has, you know, not just nine lives, but 40 lives. So we'll see where we end up when this whole thing is over.
3: Katie, it's obviously everything involved in this hearing and this issue in general is wrapped up with politics, right? We know that Republicans aren't participating for the most part because they're alleging that it's incredibly partisan. Uh, aside from uh, Lynn Cheney and uh, Adam Kin- Kinzinger, there's no Republicans on the committee. My question is, you know, as lawyers on this show, we always try to sort of objectively look at the strengths and weaknesses of a case. Is it possible to look at a case like this, if there is a case to be made down the road, strictly from a legal perspective, or is that impossible, given that we're talking possibly about charging the former president of the United States? Is it impossible to remove the politics from it?
8: In a case like this, it's hard to imagine the politics being removed from it. It's obviously something I would like to see. I mean, um, you watch that first night. And I mean, Liz Cheney was so incredibly professional and just knowing that she's a Republican, if you if you follow any Republican politics, then obviously they're pretty upset, I think, the vast majority of them are with her. But living in Georgia, it's an interesting question. Right? Because I'm not sure if the nation is aware that our district attorney in the city of Atlanta, Fulton County, which is where these ballot boxes were allegedly found, right? So we have a lot of our political figures. We have our Secretary of State. We have our former Attorney General, BJ Pack, who testified on Monday night and actually resigned in the wake of all of this. Um, We have these local guys here, right? And so we have a a DA who just came into office in Fulton County and they're, they're, um, have their grand jury assembling to indict President Trump in our state? So I come at it from a very diff- different angle where that's already being pursued in my jurisdiction. So yeah, whether your, or
3: not, yeah, mm-hmm. oh go ahead, um, go
8: ahead. Well, I think we have a very different evidence in in our case, not necessarily related to the insurrection, but as it relates to putting political pressure on officials. So right now, our Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Uh, there was a recording that was made of President Trump literally saying, I need to find 11,000 votes. We need you to find 11,000 votes because that was what he needed to pull off Fulton County, which was the difference. I mean, it was amazing that that um, that, that was the county taking place because it's so heavy um, Democratic that you would think they'd be looking maybe somewhere else. But um, we have these our local officials. That have been pressured so it's a different indictment than invitation of insurrection um but it equally is important
3: yeah for sure dan interesting you got an interesting perspective i'm sure um because you're a first amendment lawyer right and what we're talking about here at least partially is the rights of someone in this case the president to speak their mind and whether it's reasonable for someone else in this case a group of rioters to interpret those words as a call to action, right? So we all know the famous saying, you can't scream fire in a crowded theater. Is what Trump did on that day akin to screaming fire in a crowded theater?
9: Screaming fire in a crowded theater is like, uh, every time someone says that online, a first movement lawyer loses their wings. (laughs) The actual quote is, you can't falsely scream fire in a crowded theater. And even then, not necessarily, sometimes you can scream falsely that there's a fire. That put aside, I think that the the standard here is incitement, and you're not allowed to prevail upon people to commit imminent lawless action. And so clearly he wanted them to do lawless things. That's There's no colorable argument that you're allowed to break through the barricades and come inside the Capitol. The question would be the imminence aspect of it. We're not talking about days or weeks here. We're talking about minutes or hours. So, uh, you know, to my ears, I think it was fairly imminent and predictable that that would be the outcome of what he was doing. And these hearings have really filled in a lot of the gaps that were maybe easy to assume that that's how things were going. But now we're hearing it from the people in the room. Yeah, that was the goal here was to sow chaos and disorder.
1: Continuing on the political spectrum, Tina, last week, Maryland police arrested an armed man who was believed to be a threat to justice Brett Kavanaugh's life.
2: Yeah, Joe. So, you know, we're getting closer to the Mississippi abortion case getting decided. There's been a lot of agitation and protests um, across the country. And last week, the news broke that 26-year-old Nicholas Roski was apprehended outside of Brett Kavanaugh's house. He was carrying a gun, a knife, and zip ties, um, and he threatened to kill the justice. He had found his address online um, and was found um, in the middle of the night in front of his house. He's been charged with attempted murder of a Supreme Court justice, and for now, he will remain in federal custody. He had bought the Glock 17 pistol, as well as ammunition, and brought Those things as well as zip ties, pepper spray, duct tape, and other items that he said he was going to use to break into Justice Kavanaugh's house to kill him and that he would then kill himself. He claimed that he was, um, in terms of a motive, that he was upset by the leaked opinion from last month, as well as the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, He said he believed that Kavanaugh was going to vote to loosen gun control laws in a case that's currently before the the court involving a New York law that right now requires a permit to carry a gun in public. Apparently, Roski had been texting with his sister while he was sitting outside of Kavanaugh's home. He had also apparently called 911 to tell them that he was planning to kill the justice and was having suicidal thoughts. And even though there were two U.S. Marshals in front of Justice Kavanaugh's home, it was only when he called 911 um, that he was apprehended by the police, even though Kavanaugh, as well as the other Supreme Court justices, all now have round-the-clock security since the leak of the draft opinion. Um, Roski's next hearing is going to be June 22nd. Um, what's really unfortunate, Rich, is there have been rumors that other Supreme Court justices have been targeted. And I think that unfortunately, there's going to be more of this, both leading up to the decision as well as after the decision.
3: Well, a couple of points. Yeah. I mean, uh, the bigger picture, uh, in addition to that story, is that was at least part of the reason that the bill uh, was passed yesterday by the House, expected to be signed by the president, protecting. Um, Uh, Supreme Court judges, Uh, there was this issue about whether it should extend to their families, whether it should extend to lower courts. Some, I think 27 Democrats voted against it because they wanted it to extend to their families and so forth. But uh, this movement has really been... uh, This bill has been uh, discussed for a long time. Uh, Esther Salas, who's a a federal court judge, has been all over the media discussing it. She, of course, we've covered that story. She um, is a federal court judge who Lost her son tragically when uh, a former a lawyer actually was a former litigant with her showed up at her doorstep dressed as a FedEx driver, shot her, shot and killed her son, uh, and and shot her husband. Um, obviously, and you know the other issue is, and a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of people are describing the lack of media attention on the Brett Kavanaugh case as a sign of liberal bias. They're also asserting that no one has been arrested um, for being, for protesting outside of Kavanaugh House and other Supreme Court justices. Listen, no matter where you stand on these issues, I think it's ridiculous for anyone to protest outside of someone's home. And I mean, these days you can find anything online. And the fact that you're showing up to a sitting Supreme Court justice's home and trying to bully them or intimidate them uh, is ridiculous. And listen, no matter where you stand, I I also think that like Charles Schumer was, was wrong in standing on the steps of the Supreme Court saying, we're coming for you. I mean, words to that effect. That, interestingly, could also be interpreted as leaning down this road, right? I mean, conservatives are saying that what's the difference between what Trump did on January 6th and what Schumer did in the words that he used that ultimately led to someone showing up and being charged with attempted assassination of a Supreme Court justice? So, very unfortunate. Uh, Katie, what are your thoughts on, on this issue? I mean, the bill obviously is a good move. Uh, probably should be extended a little further, I think.
8: Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I don't know if you all know, but I'm actually married to a judge. So I they have, I mean, ridiculously dangerous jobs. And it's not the people that you would expect to be dangerous. You would expect criminals to be dangerous. It's not Criminals. It's people that are low lying under the surface that are in family law cases primarily that don't really have a dog in the fight. Sometimes they don't even have a super contested case, but something just makes them snap and they're looking for somebody to blame. I mean, obviously, Brett Kavanaugh did not write that opinion himself he's not even the author of it so what caused this guy to snap and go after kavanaugh i mean who knows so i think that it's a good move um especially the judge up up in the northeast i'm sorry i can't my mind is blanking on her name but um whose son was shot at the home i mean that no judge should be in that position so i agree with you it's reprehensible um i'm not sure about schumer's comments being equivalent to trump's i mean especially based on what we've seen and the tweets and all of that i think i think that's political spin in my opinion i watched chuck schumer do that speech there was nothing that i thought was violent about it but you know you you have to be careful you don't know what the impact of your words are going to be on some of these people so i don't know if that answers your question
1: tina after the big legal win johnny depp's lawyer has received a promotion
2: Yeah, so in the span of a couple of months, Camille Vasquez went from being a relatively unknown litigator at the law firm Brown-Rudnick in San Francisco to becoming what essentially is an overnight sensation, particularly for a cross-exam of Amber Heard in the recent uh, defamation trial involving Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, in which he was awarded $15 million in damages. So last week, she made headlines again when Brown Rudnick decided to accelerate her partnership consideration. Those decisions are usually made at the end of the year, and they decided to make her partner. Um, since the decision, she's been hitting the speaking circuit, and she made actually a recent appearance with um, Depp's other attorney, Ben Chu, on Good Morning America. It was actually a pretty interesting interview um, where she not only talked about making partner, but she also talked about what it was like for her to be involved in the case. And um, she said it's a bit overwhelming, all of the attention she's been getting, and that she hopes that she continues to be an inspiration to other women who might want to pursue a career in the law. She didn't talk all that much about the case. It looks like Amber Heard is going to appeal the decision. Um, Ultimately, there's speculation that's to probably get a settlement. Um, You know, there's also been a lot of chatter about whether Amber Heard's recent interview with Savannah Guthrie is going to somehow impact her appeal. Most folks don't think it will. Um, But, you know, in terms of Camille Vasquez, I think you know, Brown Rodnick made a good decision. My guess is that she is a a lawyer in demand, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of a wave she rides, Rich, if uh, she's just a flash in the pan or if this is the beginning of an illustrious career.
3: I'll tell you, they they better have made her partner because, as you know, as we've talked about on on this program many times, it's hard to find good people. And (laughs) you've never seen a lawyer with greater leverage on this planet, than Camille Vasquez after that victory, right? I mean, she she should have been whispering whispering in Benji's ear, like, "Here's my raise, buddy." Like that day. <laughs> um, so you know, I don't know if making her a partner is going to be enough. I assume she got a big raise, but she's hotly in the band, as you mentioned. I mean, you know, she's only thirty seven. She came from doing relatively low level work, it sounds like, to being the lead uh lawyer in the biggest most followed trial of all time you know including oj so uh good for her she's done great i was really impressed with her work um i do join the movement of people calling for her to be the new uh co-star of aquaman 2 uh to replace amber heard i'm not sure her acting chops but um dan have you ever seen a, a quicker uh quicker rise from uh, anonymity to being uh one of the most famous attorneys on the planet other than my own
9: no <laughs> uh, I, thought she was, I thought she was very effective. Um, talk about a hot seat to be in to to have to square off against uh, Amber Heard in that way. And you can only prepare so much in cross-exam like that. You have to be able to kind of like pick up on something, ditch what you're doing, go in another direction, play an instinct. And she was really effective. Uh, so, you know, what does that portend for her in the future. If you want to go to trial, she's someone that is battle tested. And I hope I don't get a lot of letters from her in the future, you know, for the the clients that I work with, because there's some uh, bite behind her bark. And there's a lot of kind of paper tigers in the plaintiff's bar that'll say, govern yourselves accordingly, whatever. And you just kind of look past it, but she's gone to the mats and succeeded. So she's a worthy adversary.
3: Yeah, we'll continue to see her. She's also defending Depp in a, uh, a physical assault case uh, coming up. But, but Katie, I mean, what, what Dan says is actually directly on point. And, you know, I'm going to be using some of her cross-examination as kind of a lesson to some of my attorneys when we train them about just what Dan said. Like, you know, you got. I think this was a victory of really good lawyering, you know, um, but you also have to always tamper preparation with being in the moment i think what camille did very effectively as dan mentioned is being prepared but also picking up because cross-examination and i do a lot of it you know before juries is it really depends on the moment you can't be scripted you can't be too prepared you gotta be picking up on those little nuances really right and and she really did that well i thought um before the jury she
8: did i mean camille's First of all, Camille was incredibly prepared. I mean, the way that 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 case was so streamlined where she could say just casually pull up plaintiff's exhibit Mm -hmm. 1052. I mean, and you're thinking how many exhibits and she knew exactly where to go. And what she did that a lot of lawyers can't do in the moment is one. She knew her case. She knew everything about that case. She knew everything that Amber Heard had ever said. And so when Amber would give a, a response, she would say, but that's not what you said this day or that day and so i was i was really impressed by that but she had the ability to listen to the witnesses answer and craft her her questions following up accordingly and a lot of lawyers can't do that so i agree with you she's battle tested everybody's gonna take her seriously when they have a case against her they know she can try a case so bravo to her i mean she's got the best advertising campaign out there right now so i'm jealous of her (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows she can litigate. I mean, that's incredible power.
1: Rich, typically rising numbers in sports is a good thing, but in this case, it's definitely not. The number of accusers of Deshaun Watson has now risen to 26.
3: Yeah, two more, uh, or actually four more, since we last talked about this story, I think it was even our last podcast, have accused him of uh, assault. Um, He's, of course, as of yesterday, I saw him uh, expressing how he regrets Putting the team and his teammates through this, but he did not regret the actions. He said, he reiterated that he's never assaulted anyone, never sexually abused anyone, never criminally assaulted anyone. So I'm not sure. Like somebody's got to break at some point. You know, we know that the criminal authorities have decided there's not enough evidence to pursue charges. They haven't charged him. The NFL uh, is allowing him to continue. Of course, he signed one of the richest contracts in NFL history. Um, So at some point you think something's got to, got to give. I'm not sure how long the NFL can continue to employ someone with these mounting allegations against them. We've seen and covered, right. The extensive history of how many players in general, but especially in the NFL have been accused of this kind of thing. And it seems like the NFL was being very aggressive uh, with how they treat those players. But in this case, they're sending, I think, a bit of a strange message by giving by allowing him to continue and, again, operate under this brand-new contract where he's the face of the oldest franchise. I mean, am I correct in saying the Browns? I mean, they're one of the oldest franchises. I think the the Bears probably are the oldest, but the Browns are one of the sort of fundamental franchises in the NFL. It's a tough look. I don't know. Tina, how do you think this is going to end?
2: You know, that's a really good question, Rich. I also find this particular case pretty odd given the sheer number of women that we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about dozens of women who are all, you know, sort of have very similar, very graphic stories about him. And I think that the NFL is potentially pay, playing a pretty dangerous game here. I mean, ultimately they're making a decision based on money. And I think that they're banking on the ability for him to continue to make a lot of money and, you know, I think we're just going to have to see how this unfolds because these women keep coming out of the woodwork. And my guess is that there's going to be somebody or, you know, maybe more than one person who's co- going to come out with something that just is, is so or not necessarily earth shattering, but where the nature of the accusation is a, a lot stronger than what we've seen. And then that's going to spur a reaction from the team and from the NFL. That's my guess where I think this is headed.
3: Right. Gotcha. I mean, the counter to that is that uh, the NFL might be arguing that then he hasn't been charged with a crime, that the several authorities have looked at this and decided there's not enough to charge him. So the proper forum for these allegations is where they are in, in civil court and let that play out. Of course, we know that. However, the NFL does have a different standard that they don't generally rely on, you know, the civil system or criminal system they have within their powers to enforce a separate set of rules. And they have many times, even if someone is found to be not guilty or not enough or are on charge in the criminal system, they will discipline people on their own. That's kind of part of the collective bargaining agreement. Dan, what are your thoughts on that?
9: It's all comes down to money to me because the, we're not talking criminal justice system. We're talking civil. And therefore, the goal here for the plaintiffs is to get money at the end of this process. So I, I would presume that the vast majority of instances like this that occur in professional sports, you never hear about them because it's a quiet settlement. So that tells me that the numbers are, they're too far apart on numbers and that Deshaun Watson would rather take his chances, spend money up front on lawyers and defend these cases than pay whatever that price tag was to make this go away because they can't get just, if they're looking for justice, they're not going to get that. They're going to get money at the end of this process. So um, it's intriguing to me in terms of just from a pure negotiation standpoint, how far away they might be. And with each passing day, you're having more uh, accusers and the number is getting higher for him. So uh, maybe it's too much has happened and he's better off just defending it if he feels justified that he can defend these cases. The other thing that I would look out for is how he is talking about the case publicly. He's been very careful so far not to say much more than that these cases are, are legally unfounded. And that's something that is protected under the First Amendment. He can, he can use, due to his talking in the court, but when you get on the courthouse steps or you get on social media, you have to be really careful because that's begging for a defamation suit. And so um, for, for many victims, or I'll say alleged victims of, of, of assault and other sort of things, sometimes it's easier or it's a more streamlined to bring a defamation claim than it is to bring an assault claim because there are different proofs that are sort of involved So I would look out for that because if he feels public pressure to come out and say these women are liars, for instance, which I don't think he's precisely said, that's risk on his end. So he's in a very tight spot and it doesn't seem to be, the pressure is not alleviating anytime soon.
3: It's really interesting that you say that Dan, because I think that's one of the takeaways from the Amber Heard trial. Again, I mean, the most, arguably the most covered trial in the history of of trials. I think one of the lessons people are going to take away, especially ones, uh, high profile people are, are you got to be careful what you say because- we saw that uh, it isn't just a threat to be sued for defamation. And there was a long trial expensive. I noticed that when um, Amber Heard was talking this week on TV, that she was relatively careful about her words. You know, if she, I wouldn't put it past her to be sued again if she continues to allege that she was you know, the victim of, of abuse. So I think you're right. People uh, are a little more careful now in the wake of uh, the, the death trial.
9: It's gonna be hard for her to be sued again because I. You just wonder what are the damages because no, you know he has the finding or whatever. Right? Yeah, we, the justice system is not. Or I should say the civil system is not great at adjudicating what happens after the case and what you can say or not say because prior restraints are sort of the least tolerated form of government intrusion under the First Amendment. We don't like courts saying from now on don't talk. We like to deal with the consequence or the action and to have the consequences resolved after the fact. So it is interesting from that perspective for sure. Let's talk about Jason Alexander. No, not the actor that played George
1: Costanza, but Britney Spears' ex who sabotaged her recent wedding.
3: Summer of George. Uh, the whole different uh, different Jason Alexander, like you mentioned. Um, yeah, Jason Alexander is the ex, ex-husband of Britney Spears. Britney Spears was married uh, last week. Uh, what it might be your third marriage um, Kevin Federline right. right
2: I think it's number three or number four
3: K. Fed was number one And then this guy <laughs> Jason Alexander Was married for three days uh, Before the marriage was annulled Back in 04 And he showed up at the wedding uh, He was live streaming it He said that he was invited uh, And then it turns out he was crashing He was covering it all on camera and He's been charged in Ventura County Of uh, trespassing, stalking Battery with vandalism. Um, I guess he assaulted a, uh, uh, a security officer. Um, bizarre. It doesn't seem like Brittany could ever get away from uh, legal face-off. She's one of our. She she wins one of the LFO awards for most covered celebrity. Her Trump, a couple others, Cosby's in there. But um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard from either Jason Alexander in a while. This was the the other. I thought I'd hear more from the other Jason Alexander, but. Um, yeah. What do you think? Tina?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that this was a very cold and calculating sort of um, move on his part. Um, I think he did it to get attention. He got a lot of attention. This is his um, reprise of 15 minutes of fame. And uh, I don't know if we're going to be hearing from this Jason Alexander again anytime soon.
3: Katie, this is in your wheelhouse. You represent people who (laughs) have been married many, many times. What do you tell your clients when they say, I want to invite the ex to the wedding? Good idea, bad idea. Are you just inviting something like this to happen?
8: (laughs) I mean, this was such a bizarre incident because it was like, where did this guy come from? I mean, this got more coverage than their marriage and divorce combined. And it was just bizarre. I saw the whole thing on TikTok and he just shows up And he's like walking through, like he's live streaming, like now I'm in the kitchen and and no, but I'm invited. And it was so bizarre. And then he gets like tackled to the ground while he's still filming. I was sitting there wondering, is he on something? Is he drunk? Like, what would compel somebody to do this when your relationship was so, you know, long gone, and poor Brittany, you know, she's got the whole nation on her side after this conservatorship, and everybody was rooting for her to get free of of these, you know, people that were just leeching off of her, just millions, and she finally finds this little bit of happiness, and this ghost from her past comes back to just make it all about him, I feel so bad for her, so no, that has never happened, and if I ever do a prenuptial agreement and i'll you know we usually sign those a couple of days before the wedding i'll have to ask now just make sure you don't invite your ex-husband to this because you know it could ruin your day the whole
3: thing Damn, is- some some people just can't say can't hear no as an answer right i used to work in the
9: tabloids and there's just like, if you are famous you will attract this and it it's the, it's the reason why i chose not to become a hollywood star is because it's, it, it seems to objectively stink <laughs> to be a Hollywood star. Sure, you get to go to great parties, but like there's just all these elements in your life that you cannot control. And yeah, you feel for Britney Spears. She certainly didn't do anything to deserve that attention. And um, I, I hope that it's being taken seriously. I do worry that sometimes celebrities get quicker access to justice than ordinary people. I'm sure there's he's not the first ex to show up and crash a wedding. Um, so I would love for that protection to be across the board for people. I believe the famous quote is leave Brittany alone, leave her alone. So
1: Jason Alexander, not taking that to heart. Uh Tina, it seems imagine like, if it, imagine,
3: by the way, imagine if it was the other Jason, that would be a story. <laughs>
1: salesman.
0: Uh. You
3: did have Kanye crash that birthday party, you
8: know, so he could be next.
1: So, Rich, it seems like sweeping changes are coming to Californian defense attorneys after voters are leaning heavily towards one side.
3: Well, yeah, the DA in San Francisco, the uh, district attorney in San Francisco, was kicked out, basically, um, by uh, constituents who allege that he was too soft on crime. You know, the, the, the story of San Francisco over the last decade has been well covered. Uh, I was there recently. It is kind of a mess. Um, You know, crime is up and um, it is hard to move around the city without the fear of being, um, you know, the victim of of crime. But the bigger story here, friends, is that this is a movement that seems to be taking hold nationwide. Um, Lots of cities, uh, there is discussion about recalling the district attorneys because of continued high profile criminal incidents. There was a video in LA. Got a lot of attention of a car plowing into a young mother with her baby. I mean, literally plowing into them. She managed to, you know, at the last minute almost shield her son. Um, and that that guy, I think, got five months. He got he got charged with an incredibly small uh, offense that is punishable by, I think, five to seven months here in Cook County, where we are. Um, Kim Fox has been widely criticized. You know, we all know her handling of the Jesse Smollett matter, but uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately, for those that are not a fan of Kim Fox, Illinois does not allow for recall. Only a small number of states allow for recalling their DA. But this is a a trend that uh, seems to be taking hold. On the other hand, what uh, Chiza booted I'm not sure exactly if I'm pronouncing his first name properly, he says this is all a political campaign, that it was funded by my opponents, and that this uh, is all just... um, you know, by, uh, all funded by uh, high-profile donors who are looking to um, reverse the effects of more progressive district attorneys around the country.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I think that it's obviously political. We we started this podcast talking about political issues relating to January 6th, and we talk about these issues all the time, and I'm sure that there is a political on um, um, You know, overtone to all of this. But I mean, just based on our experience with Kim Fox here, um, you know, I wish that we could undo her election. Right. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Um, you know, she had, you know, has had bad press as recently as a few days ago with regard to the allegations of spousal abuse that her husband called the cops on her. Um, because he made a post on Facebook that he didn't like, and so I mean, at the end of the day, I think our crime problem, both locally as well as nationally, is a very complicated issue. I, I do think that our public officials have to be held accountable for for
3: being part of the problem. Katie, Dan, where do you where do you stand on this?
8: I'm, well, I'm not. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Th-
9: thank you. Um, he's only been to the DA since 2020, so I I, I feel that. I mean, if he's going in a different direction than his predecessors have, you have to give him a term. To, I mean, that's sort of the minimum unit of measurement. So I, I do have a problem with these recalls when they're so fast and when the, the person has no time to implement their agenda, especially when the recall is not premised on some sort of wrongdoing on his part. It's just policy. They don't like the way he's approaching things. Um, as far as it being a wave, I, I don't know. I mean, the reality is that across the country, there's been an uptick in, in crime In major cities, and you can take them and put them in the column of reformer or not reformer. It 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 travels across both uh, sort of camps. So the notion that he is driving this increase, when there are hardline you know prosecutors in other districts that are seeing the same rise, to me it's just way too premature to have any sort of sense of that. Um, And there have been a couple that have hung on and actually, or even you know, strengthened their. Their hold. Um, Larry Krasner was certainly attacked in Philadelphia and he had a very strong showing against uh, Carlos Vega who wanted to bring it, you know, kind of run back the old team. So I feel like it's too early to know exactly how these things are going. And it's also premature to make a judgment on these people that are trying new things, people that are going and doing bad things like letting people get off or, you know, because they're a family member or involved in some sort of corruption. That's another story, but as far as on a political policy level, um, it seems like people might be overcorrecting for some difficulties the countries are the countries going through due to the pandemic and economic
5: problems.
8: I agree with Dan and Christina. I mean, I think through COVID we saw a rise in crime, we saw a rise in abuse, especially in my business. Domestic abuse was at a high, and I think that it's exactly as Christina said. It's too complicated to pin it on one person. I mean, people that are pointing a finger at a DA don't realize the DA is a figurehead of the prosecution. He's not in there trying every case, and he, DAs don't sentence. So if the, uh, if the, uh, criminal people charged with crimes are getting sentences that the public doesn't agree with. I mean, are we asking questions of judges about why those, those sentences were acceptable or why those sentences were rendered, why they agreed to that plea. If it was a plea, I think you also have to look at, you know, um, Incarcerations are at an all-time high. They had issues with having too many people in jail, with funding, with COVID, with overcrowded jails, especially in big cities. And so in Atlanta, I think as um, a city in particular, probably Chicago, similarly, we have lots of people who are running from the job of law enforcement. And it's you know, we have a real hiring issue on our streets. So not even having enough cops. So I could see why that would trickle down to judges going, okay, how do I get rid of some of these things? And focus the county's efforts on the cases that are really, you know, murders, rapes, really, really serious things. So I think I think it's unfair to point the finger at just the D.A. and say we need to let this person go before they even finish the term. I don't see that as being something that goes nationwide.
1: Okay, so celebrity (laughs) divorces have been all the rage lately. (laughs) Tina Thompson, many other uh, famous people as well. Why don't we uh, go ahead and go on to the topic?
2: Sure. So apparently it may be summertime, but it's not the summer of love for a number of pretty famous celebrities. Um, A couple months ago, Kenan Thompson separated from his wife of 11 years, Christina Evangeline. There's been a lot of speculation that it was his schedule that led to the demise of that marriage. Um, between him rounding out his many-year tenure on Saturday Night Live in New York and filming his sitcom in L.A., Keenan, a lot of folks believe that it was a schedule that did that marriage in. Then there's Anthony Anderson and his wife of 22 years, Alvina Anderson. Um, they have adult children, so there really isn't any child support involved there. They had originally split a number of years ago and got back together in 2017. Um, like Keenan Thompson, Anthony Anderson has some interesting things going on with his career. Blackish just ended. Um, it looked like he was going to do a second season on Law and Order, and then the kibosh was put on that too. It looks like that divorce is actually going pretty amicably. Um, they're going to be selling their L.A. house and he's going to be paying spousal support. But there's a lot of speculation about what that's going to look like, um, given that we don't really know if Anthony Anderson's going to be working come fall. And then finally, there's Julianne Huff and her split from her soon to be ex Brooks Lake after nearly three years of marriage. Um, they split in 2020 and filed for divorce last year. There's been a lot of press about all the details that when is going into this divorce agreement, they're splitting up their properties amicably. Um, She's taking the artwork, china, silverware, and furniture at her Tesla, and he's taking his two trucks um, as well as his ranch. Um, It seems like the big issue that remains there is her $350,000 engagement ring, which is seven carats and... um, a real looker, Rich. That was quite an engagement ring she had. They both Let's go right to Katie. She, yeah, huh? yeah. He can oh, maybe sorry. he can reuse it for his uh, soon-to-be new wife. So, um, but in any event, they've gone on with their lives. It seems pretty amicable. But that engagement ring is getting a lot of airplay.
3: Yeah, let's get let's go right to a uh, legal face-off divorce correspondent, Katie. <laughs> who gets the ring, Katie? Who has oh, sure to deal with this issue it. all the time? Who who gets I'm the ring? I'm
8: so sorry. The,
3: the, ring is, the rings are uh, one of the most expensive pieces of property that you fight about, right? So, I mean, who yeah. gets it?
8: And sorry, this is pretty standard across the board. You keep the ring. It's a, it's, you can look at it as a premarital gift. You can look at it as a conditional gift. But I hate that for him. But that, that one's staying on her finger. Um, she can sell it. She can keep the proceeds. But Sorry, that one's gone.
3: I, I mean, well, that's I'm been litigated that. though, right? I mean, that's been litigated though, right? Whether it's a gift or whether, I, that, that, I know that issue has been litigated. We've talked about it before. I suppose different states deal with it differently, but how do most courts view uh, engagement ring as property of the, of the of the recipient, right?
8: If you want to look at it as premarital property, if you want to look at it as a conditional gift, I mean, I give you this this gift upon the completion of, of a condition, which is marriage, You it becomes yours, right? It's a gift either way. Um, I'm not aware of a state that that views the engagement ring as marital property because it's
3: not. <laughs> Katie, how, how do celebrities celebrities are a lot better looking than us for sure. But um, besides that, you know, we always read these statements and they're always uh, written by publicists and very carefully. You know, they're using words like amicable resolution, amicable separations, and conscious uncoupling was the famous one with. Uh, um. You know, uh, Chris Martin um, when they when they separated with with Paltrow. But how do celebrity divorces differ from the rank and file ones that you deal with?
8: I don't think they differ, other than everybody cares about what's going on in them. I mean, celebrities are people, too. They have children. They have money. I think the stakes can be higher. I mean, but Kim and Kanye's divorce, there are plenty of cases like that, just not with that dollar figure where there's a narcissist who goes off the deep end. Um, that is a typical case. Um, Julian Huff's case, typical case. All of those cases are typical. So it's just sad that they don't have the privacy to deal with that and everything that goes with it without everybody Looking into it, but really at the end of the day, it's the same issues and they're treated the same way in family court.
3: So, well, well I have one last question that we'll ju- we'll get Jan- Dan to jump in. But if you've got a client who's a high profile litigant in a divorce proceeding, do you advise them to try to stay off social media? I mean, in this case, in the, oh, the Julianne yeah. case, both of them have been spotted. You know, since this announcement on social media with, you know, uh, other people, other men and women, do you advise them to sort of hold off on that until the case is resolved? Um, or do you not, or or what's the advice?
8: I mean, you first, you want to keep a low profile. So Mm -hmm. some celebrities will either try to settle their divorce and then they'll file everything in the record so that, um, you know, it's all done and it can be finalized right then. Um, they might file under a pseudonym, they might file under initials, it's best to keep a low profile so that you don't have things coming out of the woodwork, right? You don't have people trying to jump in and say, make allegations and try to make a buck off of you during during a low time in your life. So yeah, they should stay off social media. They should stay off Twitter. They should let their publicist speak for them and very limited in what they do. I'd stay in the house as much as possible or with friends out of the paparazzi's eye. And I mean, I'll be thinking about all those couples as they go through that because it's a difficult emotional process to wind down your family and to, it's not something I would want to be public.
3: Dan, what are
9: your thoughts? Back when I worked for the tabloids, you could just throw a dart at a, any celebrity couple and just, you statistically, you'd be correct that they have an unhappy marriage. Um, you know, sometimes they'd beat the drum for years saying these two are getting divorced with no apparent sign of it actually happening. And then it just happens. And you wonder whether or not the the tabloid just manifested it, like spoke it into existence. So um, celebrities are people, but they're not ordinary people. So I don't think they have, while they have very ordinary problems, they sometimes have uh, extraordinary aspects to them um, as individuals because they're people that seek limelight and attention and drama. So it's not a surprise that these things don't have a lot of staying power. And I'm more inclined to kind of congratulate a couple for sticking it out that long and showing some love for each other Eleven years is nothing to sneeze at. I I think the other Anthony Anderson might have been longer. So, silver lining, you know, they 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 certainly are in the top percentile of uh, of celebrities that stayed together for a period.
3: Dan, before we go, I got to give you a shout out. I mean, I see a Zabar's book back there, uh, home to maybe. Speaking of Seinfeld, it all comes back to Seinfeld because Zabar's has the best babka anywhere in the world. Um, Delicious uh, chocolate babka at uh, at Zabar's. Mm. up there on the upper uh, upper west side of new york right
9: yes uh the best um smoked salmon you could ever enjoy if you're i, I don't know i think you can like have a chip to you anywhere in the united states or something like that so don't shy away from placing an order at safe R's.
3: delicious fish and delicious babka
1: well, that's going to do it for legal grab bag here on the legal face off podcast. Before we do go though, quick, uh, publication to our two guests today,
9: Dan, do you have a podcast out there you'd like to plug called slander town? One word. I think you just search for it and it comes up <laughs> and then you can't get rid of it.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. And then Katie, do you want to uh, throw your TikTok handle out there?
8: Sure. I have a TikTok handle, which is at Jenny girl 28, which is the name of my dog. And, um, I like to talk about divorces and start lots of heated debate um, between men and women. So come join the fun on my TikTok page.
1: It is true. There's a niche for everything out in the TikTok world. Uh, big thanks to Katie and Dan on our legal grab bag today. Also for our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Joey Christopoulos, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. And please do us a favor and give us five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. This is the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio.
9: It's Christina Martini and Rich
1: Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio. We blowing up your
3: stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports Hollywood and don't forget.